This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, January 27th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. Have we gotten Malthus all wrong? The economist, known for his dire suggestions about the long-term prospects for humanity, was he really just a cautious optimist? Ross Emmett directs the Center for the Study of Economic Liberty at Arizona State. We spoke last month in Phoenix about Malthus as a predictor of not subsistence-level farming, but of the value of institutions. Malthus is known for one thing. And uh, that is that given uh, a certain amount of uh, human resources and given a certain amount of productivity that those humans can engage in, uh, that we can never get too far from subsistence level, that there's always this looming collapse of uh, the ability to feed ourselves, to care for ourselves. That, that could have catastrophic results for humanity. Now, people on the left often will look at this Malthusian view and say, look, we can't get above our raisin. There are a lot of people who call for zero population growth because based in, in part on uh, what Malthus articulated. Uh, but you uh, pitch Malthus as not this sort of doomsayer you pitch him as a cautious optimist. Correct. And so what in this popular narrative about Thomas Robert Malthus, Robert Malthus, Bob Malthus, whatever you want to call him, uh, you know, t- how does that, ha- how, do you, how do you square those two things? His friends called him Bob. So uh, I go with the Robert side because I'm a friend. Um, and uh, Malthus, well, let, let me start at the beginning. Perhaps Robert made a mistake right at the very beginning by not following his instinct. He says to his friends later that if he could have used logarithmic functions when presenting the postulata, when presenting the basic population principle, that he would have. But he didn't think the public could understand functional relationships. And so he chose to present the basic problem as um, two independent or independent-sounding natural phenomena. People have sexual desires. That's not going to change. People need to eat. That's not going to change. But there is, of course, a relationship between these two that in order to eat, we have to have people to produce the food that we eat. And in order to have people, we have to have the production of food. So the production of food requires human beings, and human beings require the production of food. And economists ended up taking that and putting it into a functional relation. The amount of food is dependent upon the number of people you have with some production function thrown in. And vice versa. Malthus says, if I had thought people could understand that easily, I would have done that. He didn't, and I think that's taken one group of people a long way in the wrong direction. If you set the Malthusian problem as a relationship between productivity and uh, people, then 
and as a functional relationship, then um, you have the you have the constant uh, incentive to continue production and continue in, um, investing in human beings, um, uh, uh, given given a set of technologies um, that l- leads to an equilibrium point absent other institutions. And this is one of two of the most important words in the population principle that are often overlooked are the first two words in the population principle. The population principle says, when unchecked, human population increases tend to override the production of food. People ignore the first two words. Read the sentence. So what are the checks? So when unchecked, the checks, first and foremost, are institutional. That is, they are the institutions that enable markets to work. So Malthus says, if we have private property, if we have rule of law, if we have um, the capacity to create markets in which food is bought and sold, if we have an institutional structure which supports marriage, for him, ultimately, that supports the delay of marriage, because in his world, the the aside from reasons that he, he puts in footnotes, not in the main text, um, the delay of marriage is the primary way of of uh, that a family could say, "Hang on a second, before we have kids, let's invest in some capital to increase our family's capacity to raise those kids." Okay. The delay of marriage would be the primary means of doing that in his society. So. Um, Malthus says, if we have that kind of institutional context, then we may be able to to uh, increase. So ultimately, he's a cautious optimist because it's dependent upon the institutions that occur. But he thinks we can have rising real wages with an increase in population. Okay, um, just like Adam Smith. Adam Smith thinks we can have a rising real wage and a rising population. Malthus agrees. but it depends upon the nature of the institutions. He doesn't think that any human society that he can observe has ever had those institutions. He thinks that it may be coming. He thinks that the institutions of Europe, um, especially England and France and the Netherlands, that those institutional structures have potential capacity to enable this to happen over time. But He's looking at you know the dawn of the vast expansion of human population and human prosperity the last two hundred plus years, and he's saying, um, you know, right now, most of society, most societies um, are not there. There's varying degrees of institutions, but they're not there yet. But um, there's a capacity for it to happen, and of course, what we've seen is that yes, it did happen. Uh, I'll just say one more thing before you ask another question on this, and that is um, one uh, one of the things that people have overlooked in reading Malthus, and one of the reasons why faculty members only assign the first essay, um, the first original edition of Malthus's book, um, is because in the second edition, which expanded this thin book into a two-volume set, he provides a 
um, a scale of civilizational forms that actually exist in human populations that do check human population growth and enable food production to rise and populate. But many of those societies, the civilizations, many of those societies um, are not stable enough to provide the kind of long-term institutional framework that will support uh, the kind of economic prosperity that we've seen over the last 250 years. And, and I don't know, to what extent it was Malthus looking at uh, these civilizations that pre-existed this explosion right. that he was witness to the beginning of in Europe? Because if you read Stephen Davies, uh, his most, most recent book is dealing, deals a lot with uh, these moments in time when the institutional arrangement seemed pretty good for exactly the kind of explosion right. that we saw. So I don't think, so Malthus, he doesn't have the benefit of having seen more of it happen, but he has the benefit of seeing the world he's part of. And by the way, the person he reacted to was William Godwin, who was actually a libertarian anarchist, who, which sometimes is one and the same and sometimes not, so that's why I say libertarian anarchist, who believed we should get rid of all institutions, absolutely 100%, including marriage, including property rights, including everything, and that uh, that would become a perfect society. And Malthus says, unlike Burke, Malthus says, you know, in England, if we did do that, what Godwin says, we actually probably could get better for a while because there's a lot of public land that's private. You know, it's owned by no nobility. I I always go to Downton Abbey when I'm talking to students, and you know, you say the great lord and the hired hands, and suddenly you free that property to be used by people for their own production. Malthus says you're going to see an upsurge in production, and people things are going to get better, but then. People are going to have, they don't, without market signals, without income signals, people are, when they see prosperity, they're going to have kids. And so these two forces are going to work not in relationship to each other, but independently, and things are going to get worse after they get better. So aside from private property, from uh, the price system, um well, the delay, yeah. marriage, and the delay of marriage is foundational. Okay, and that, um, and then the the context within which that happens. So, a lot of what he does in the, when he expands his research is to look at the different ways in which the uh, rules, civilizations, uh, political systems, etc., encourage the the two prime things: the capacity to produce. Uh, to increase production and the um, the two key things for him a- and the, the delay of marriage. And those, so those are the two key things. And so, for example, he goes to Norway and he really likes Norway because in Norway, which is more rural than its Swedish uh, neighbor, um, in Norway, um, they have um, conscription of all 18-year-olds into the military for three years. And the church buys into it. And so the Norwegian church supports delay of marriage 
Don't get married until you're back from your military service. And the society supports it by sending the young women who are not in that era joining the military, sending them to work as servants in the great households um, and where they are engaged in domestic labor. Um, and then, um, so there's, there's productive use, there's the military use, there's the building of the nation, and this simultaneously builds economic growth and delays marriage. And that even that three-year delay of marriage for him is very important. And, um, and the churches support, because Norway has an established church, so the established church is a part of this. He sees this as a package. So again, it's not just the relationship between sex and, and uh, production. It's a whole package of institutional contexts in which decisions about marriage and production are made. And he, he basically does that for, um, he, he, he creates it on an ascending scale of potential prosperity. So does he, po does he pose this, these institutional arrangements uh, in this second edition and beyond of, of yeah. his book, does he pose this as uh, something that is fragile or something that is robust? It's a good question because I'm not sure if he has those notions as much in mind, but definitely He's certainly concerned about the sustainability of those institutions. And and um, uh, I would say he's more concerned about the fragility than he is about the robustness because he thinks. But but he does give in a number of examples of about of robustness where he. Uh, so, for example, he talks about the pastoral nations of Europe and the North African uh, societies as um, ones that have a fairly well-established customs and, um, and patterns of practice, habits of the heart, if you want to use that kind of language, which means that they are, while they are still poor, um, for reasons that those institutions create, they're not in the worst off position in, in, in the scale of human societies. They are, let's say, a quarter of the way up the spectrum. So they're, they're, they've escaped the Malthusian trap, but they are fragile enough that they could slip back into it. And the specific thing he talks about for those societies are warlords. He says these societies have warlords that prey upon popul the population, and so you're all while you while you are usually okay. There's a possibility that you're going to go backwards um, because of the warlords, and um, so he says the the what the thing that they need that society needs is to change its habits. They need to give up the habits of war. Um, and and adopt habits that are more peace, peaceful. And he uses that later when he's defending Wilberforce's goal of ending slavery in the British and um, the slave trade. He uses that exact argument because one of his opponents, William Cobbett, argues that African slaves moved from England from West Africa, from these societies we were just talking about, to the West Indies. Um, that these th slaves are now put into a better society that 
because because their African society was the worst off place in the world to live, and now they are in the English society, even though they're slaves and they're better off. And Malthus gets really upset, pens an 1,100-word essay that he attaches as a footnote to the final appendix of the book. Remember, this is in the days of lead type, so he can't reset the book. And that footnote says, um, Cobbett, you're wrong. The, the West African societies from which slaves come is not the worst off society. And the West Indian slave society is actually worse than the worst off society in human existence. And we know that because West African slaves are committing suicide at a rate of a number of people a day. So we know that there's no worse place than a worst off place and their place is actually not as bad as the worst off it's even better and so they would be better in west africa than they would be in the caribbean and um and that supports the so that's malthus on the slave trade he supports the elimination of the slave trade and he uses this cultural mapping that i've described as his way of defending that Ross Emmett directs the Center for the Study of Economic Liberty at Arizona State University. We spoke last month in Phoenix. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.